I have a question to get things started this morning. For those of you who are new, I uh, just want to let you know, basically, we're going to spend some time uh, in some teaching for a little while here this morning, and uh, then we're going to have uh, some time with, in, in music and in worship that way, and uh, the, the kids are, are not in the room there. We've got our babies over here in Treasure Bay, uh, then our preschooler are back over here in Jammers, our elementary kids are over in Surge, and our teens, our 10 to 18-year-olds are over in the queue uh, with their lesson today. So if you're wondering where all the, te- the kids and teens are, that's the deal. So you wait till the music starts, and they're going to fill this room up. Um, and if you're sitting here and you fit in one of those categories or one of your kids fits in one of those categories and you want to make use of those, those ministries, uh, anytime, just go, go plug in there. I wanted to uh, lead off this morning with a question, and it's this. Do you have family members who are far from God? Do you have any family members who are far from God? Do you have any family members who have drifted away from church? Do you have some family members who may not be that far from a relationship with God, but they just aren't quite there yet? Do you have some family members that your heart is burdened for? Anybody, does that, anybody have anybody like that come to mind while on any of those questions? How about friends, coworkers? That got the rest of us, I think. Is there anyone in your life that lives right here in our area and you've invited them to church on a Sunday, and you've tried to tell them about your experience here, and when you talk with them about a relationship with Jesus Christ, they just don't quite get it? And you have a burden for them to get plugged in with some of the people that you do church with and that you serve with and that you worship with because you know that that's the missing piece for them. My next question is this. What do you think the church would have to do to get those people that you're burdened for to come check this thing out on a Sunday morning. What would we have to do? We want you to think about that a little bit, about your answer to that question, because it's not just the leadership's responsibility to figure out how to get those people that you care deeply about, who, who don't see themselves as church people, who aren't sure that they believe the whole thing. In fact, they're pretty certain they don't, uh, who think that there might be something off with you because you do believe it. It's not all on the church's leadership team to sit down at a table for a few hours and come up with a strategy to reach them. You're part of this. You're a huge part of this whole process. So today I want to talk about uh, some of our core values here at Faith Community because we started this church nearly uh, 20 years ago with 19 core values. And a few years into this, uh, we, we realized that oh, that's a long list. And even those of us who wrote them had a hard time memorizing them. So we narrowed it down to 12. And then after that, we combined a couple. And so uh, since in the last few weeks, we've been talking about how to stay on track as a church. We took some time. We're taking some time here at the beginning of the year to, to have some in-house teaching to kind of help us stay on track with what uh, God has, has called us, who God has called us to be and what Jesus has commissioned us to do. We're going to continue the conversation um, for the next few weeks, but we started a few weeks ago talking about membership, and we talked about concentric circles and where you fit in those circles. We talked about mission and vision and the things that we must do. So today, we're going to talk through our core values. Before we go any further, let's stop and just pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us together this morning. Thanks for each person who's in this room, who's carved out some time to, uh, to spend this morning with us. I pray that you would meet with us. I pray that your Holy Spirit would have freedom to work in our hearts. We just want to be open to what you have for us today. We want to experience your presence. We want to be challenged to go from this place and walk in the footsteps of Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I'm going to jump in. These are in no particular order. I'm going to start with number, well, I'm going to start with number one. 
but they're in no particular order. Number one, core value, the Bible is our standard. That's number one. The Bible is our standard. The, the Bible is God's means by which he has chosen to reveal himself, to speak to us. One of, the, one of the first things, for example, that we see in the opening pages of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 1, we read this no less than 10 times. It said, God said. God said. That the God of the Bible is a God who speaks. And he continues to be a God who speaks to us through his word. So the reason we need revelation is that God is creator and we are created. And the distance between us and God is great. And unless God practiced self-disclosure, speaking to us, revealing to us who he is and what he's done through Jesus Christ, we would not know. We would be, without his revelation, without him self-disclosing, we would be left with speculation. Speculation is the human effort to guess what God is like. It's a human effort to guess what God wants us to believe and how God wants us to behave. Speculation includes things like philosophy and spirituality and religion, as well as various forms of social sciences. And not all that, none of that's necessarily bad or evil, but all of it is in a category of speculation, human efforts to, take a, to make a ventured guess at who God is and what he's like. Well, revelation is a lot more reliable, is a lot more helpful than speculation because revelation isn't us guessing. Revelation is God speaking. And with God speaking, he tells us who he is. He tells us what he desires for us. He tells us how to have a relationship with him. He speaks to us, and then he invites us in prayer to speak to him. When we say the Bible, what we're talking about is this collection of books. It's a collection of books. It's like a library of books. That like God is divinely inspired. The, all scripture is breathed out by God, inspired of God. The, the, the teaching and the recalibration that was the Protestant Reformation led to the doctrine of what we call sola scriptura. Sola scriptura just simply means that scripture is our highest authority. Scripture alone is our highest authority. At Faith Community, we believe this. Yes? All right. I'm just letting you know that most of us, some of us, a handful of us, your leadership at Faith Community, we believe this, that the Bible is our highest authority. You hear me? Dad and I are all the time, got to read your Bible, got to read your Bible, got to read your Bible. There's a reason for that, because it is the highest authority. It's the sole authority for our lives. So we want to be a Bible-believing, Bible-memorizing, Bible-studying, Bible-trusting, Bible-preaching, Bible-hearing church. That Scripture alone, sola scriptura, Scripture alone is our highest authority. So that's core value number one, the Bible is our standard. Number two, spiritual gifts are our ministry tools. Spiritual gifts are our ministry tools. Part of being and becoming a mature believer is discovering our spiritual gifts and then using those gifts to serve one another. Let me give you a brief definition of spiritual gift. A spiritual gift is a special ability that's given by the Holy Spirit to believers to serve one another effectively. That's, all, that's what a spiritual gift is. God has gifted you. Some of you just want to look at the floor when I say that because you can't believe it's true. But God has gifted you with a spiritual gift at the, at the movement of his Holy Spirit. It's his call, it's his decision. You don't work for it. He just gives it to you. Oh, and God has gifted you not for your sake. God has gifted you for my sake. And God has gifted me for your sake. 
It's how it works. The reason you've been given a spiritual gift or gifts is to serve other believers. It's through the gifts that God allows his church to function. The Apostle Paul teaches us um, about spiritual gifts in a handful of passages. I wish it was just like one passage. Here's a spiritual gifts passage. But you've got to read all of Paul's writings. It's Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, and then the Apostle Peter talks about some of the gifts in 1 Peter 4. And that, those four passages, you pretty, much get, uh, you pretty much get them all. I'll give that to you again. Romans, there, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 4. <clears throat> you may not have thought about it this way, but when you walked in this morning, this whole scenario of spiritual gifts was already playing out, was already happening. See, sometime yesterday morning, a crew of people rolled in here to prepare the, for this service by cleaning the building, emptying trash and vacuuming and mopping floors and cleaning bathrooms. There's a good chance someone has been here since last Sunday to attend to some kind of maintenance project. Someone has created all the multimedia content that's on the screen. Someone has planned the music and prepared the band and the singers. Weeks ago, or maybe even months ago, someone thought about what your kids would experience this morning. They made curriculum choices and planned out today's content uh, weeks ago. They prepared video teaching content. They printed handouts. They made sure people were scheduled to fill every slot in our kids' ministries. You know, there are, I checked, there are 14 people scheduled just today to serve your kids from infants to teens. 14. So you're like, wow, there's empty seats here, there, next to me. Well, 14 people are serving in the wings today, plus all the kids. And you and I have been the benefactor of these people with a gift of service, Gift of ministry, gift of hospitality, people with administration gifts, uh, people with leadership gifts, people with exhortation and teaching gifts. Today, you have been ministered to already in a variety of ways by people that you will not see and may not know yet, but who have discovered their gifts, who have made their gifts available to this church. And that's why you most of the time enjoy coming here and you enjoy belonging here because a variety of people are actively using their gifts and God is ministering to you through those people. So yeah, all right, yes. They don't do it for that, but we'll, we'll, we'll applaud them anyway. This is the thing I love about people who have the gift, especially gift of helps and serving behind the scenes. The last thing they want is acknowledgement. So we'll just do that, that. We have to figure out creative ways to do that. Most people will accept a Dunkin' Donuts card. You see, we probably didn't think about it this way when we came in this morning. You probably didn't come in here and say, now who are those people who vacuum those carpets? Who are the people that make sure there's coffee in the lobby? Who are the kids that planned my kids' experience today? I wonder when they thought about that. i got to thank them for using their gifts. You probably don't ask, well, I wonder who organized the worship team, because there's different singers every week, and I wonder how that all plays out. How does that work? They just show up? Do they practice? Or are they just naturally that good? And did they... <laughs> when did they learn that new song? You, you didn't think about that, and that's okay, because a lot of people show up early and during the week and make their gifts available to the Lord to use through the church. Wherever there's an orchestrated group of people coming together to do something for God's work, it is an example of men and women and teenagers and children making their gifts available and ministering the grace and the goodness and the love of God through them to other people. That's what spiritual gifts are all about. You know what the result of that is? If you are a believer, then you are important to the kingdom of God. If you are a believer, we can't do without you. In the kingdom of God, everybody is somebody. Nobody's a nobody because everybody's a somebody. Because in the kingdom, there are no nobodies in the kingdom of God. The problem is, if you sit back and you, sell, you kind of selfishly hog your gift and you refuse to make it available to the body of Christ, and a couple people miss out, 
you miss out on being used by God because there's nothing like that. There's nothing like it. You miss out, and somebody who needs the goodness and grace of God as shown by your gift, they miss out too. Somebody misses out. And until you're willing to let God use your spiritual gift to minister to other people, there will always be something missing. These are the people who come to the pastor and say, well, you know, I just don't really get anything out of the sermons. I don't really get anything out of the music. It's not my thing. I don't get anything out of my small group experience. I don't, I don't get anything. I don't get anything. I don't get anything. I don't get anything. And I want to say, wait a minute, listen to what you're saying. Do you think for a minute that the primary reason that God brought you to a local church is to get something? God has gifted you to give something. And oftentimes we get, when we get all bent out of shape, it's because we got things confused and turned upside down and we think, well, I just came to get, you know. No, 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 no. God brought you here to give. Spiritual gifts come from the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God chooses to give whatever gift He chooses to whomever He chooses to give it for His purposes. God has gifted each and every one of you. So the question is, do you know what your gifts are? If not, you need to figure that out. That's one of the steps you've got to take if you want to move forward in maturing as a follower of Jesus, as a believer, to start to figure that out. We've got some tools that we've used over the years to help you figure that out, and they're not foolproof. It's not, it's not inspired of God, not 100% accurate, but it's a good tool to get a good starting place to start some conversation. So what we've done today is I've put a handful of these spiritual gifts assessments out on the table in the lobby where the membership covenants are there on the left. So if you um, are interested in exploring a little bit about where your spiritual gifts are, um, grab one of those. It's not a test. It's not a fail or pass. It's an assessment to see where your, where your spiritual gifts may lie. And I think it, you may look at it and like, well, that's not right because, and, and that at least the result will get you starting to think about it and being open to God showing you where your gifts are. And then once you discover where they are, I think it'll take about one conversation. We'll figure out where to plug you in. Okay? So I encourage you to stop by and grab that. And if they're gone by the time you get there, let me know. We'll print some more. Core value number three is that every member is a minister and every member is equipped for service. And I'm going to lump this together with number five, with number four, that servanthood is our operating style. So if spiritual gifts are our ministry tools, leads us right into every member is a minister, every member is equipped for service, and servanthood is our operating style. <clears throat> about, uh, about 15 years ago, a little more, we were introduced uh, to the idea of span of care. Span of care is basically the idea that any average person can really only care for 12 to 15 other people if you're really going to have relationships be the basis for your caring and your serving. And that's why it's important that everybody in the congregation is caring for one another, that every member of the church is ministering to and serving one another, because the people with titles can't do it all. We realize it's on the leadership to make sure it's happening, to make sure that our members are equipped to serve one another. And we haven't really started to figure this one out. Uh, I've determined it's just a lifelong learning process because what worked 10 years ago probably isn't going to necessarily work today. And it's easy for this equipping process to fall off the table. And, but, so we've decided to get real intentional about developing our servant leaders here at Faith Community. And starting in a couple weeks' time, or I guess next week, we're con- and we're going to continue this through the year. We're going to say more about that later. Here's the thing about span of care. The church leader who tries to carry too wide a span of care is going to be ineffective and will eventually experience burnout. It's just going to happen. Perhaps you've experienced this in, a, in a, your previous church setting, maybe. 
Maybe that was you in a previous church experience. Because someone who's called to lead in a church or called to serve a people group within the church or in the community, uh, just because you have that calling doesn't mean you're automatically effective. Doesn't mean you're exempt from overcommitting and eventually burning out. And here's why this is so important to understand. Because when the leader burns out, the people burn out. The people under their care burn out too. Because needs go unmet. The, tra- the result is a train wreck. So right now in the life of our church, we're, we're, I would say, actively looking for leaders. And here's what I mean by that. We're looking for servants. Leadership starts with service. If leadership is about influence, influence is gained by serving. So we're looking for servant leaders. We're looking for shepherds. We're looking for leaders of leaders. We're looking for equippers, teachers, teachers of teachers. People who will live out 2 Timothy 2 where Paul said, these things you've heard me say, teach them to other reliable people who will be able to pass them on to others. So it's something we're continuing to work on. We're being very intentional about it right now. And, and we'll tell you more about what's going on in, with that in the next few weeks. Core value number five. Our definition of success is New Testament community. <clears throat> We've said that in the church, the simple principle that governs our interactions is that we are to treat each other in the church the way God has treated each of us in Christ. That's the standard. That's a pretty high standard. We've said for years that our house rules here spell out the word faces. Our house rules are forgive, accept, care, encourage, and submit to one another. You'll find those teachings in Ephesians 4, Romans 15, Galatians 6, Hebrews 3, and Ephesians 5. Did you get them all? Do I have them on the screen, Corey? Ephesians 4, 32. Since some of you are writing this down, I'm going to stop and give them to you. Ephesians 4, 32. Romans 15, 7. Galatians 6, 2. Hebrews 3, 13. And Ephesians 5, 21. I'm going to stop right here while you're trying to catch up with that. How many of you use the YouVersion Bible app? I'm curious. I'll ask it this way. How many of you have downloaded it on your phone or mobile device? Okay. Let me see. Now, keep your hands up for a second. I want to know how many of you are, know what I'm talking about. Okay. You have a smartphone or a mobile device of some kind, and you have downloaded the Bible app, and sometimes you use it. You're familiar with it. Okay. Thanks. Uh, YouVersion has just introduced uh, a feature called Events, where uh, we could take notes from a sermon like today or last week, and especially sermons where we have a lot of scripture references, and we can build that right in there. You just have to go to your U version, pull up your, your, your account, and you'll see an event there for Faith Community Fellowship for today, for February 5th, and you can pull up notes. And so when I have a lengthy list of Bible references, it'd be right there on your mobile device. How many of you would use something like that? Okie dokie, we're going to start experimenting with that. There's a little bit of work to get it set up. I don't want to do it if two people are going to use it. But if you're going to really use it, we'll, uh, we'll start to explore that a little bit. The way that we treat each other in the church is a reflection of how you think about God. When I hear things like, well, they aren't really my people. Your treatment of each other is a reflection of your reverence and your respect for Christ. There are, uh, last time I counted, 58 one another verses in the New Testament. Things like love one another, 
serve one another, accept one another, admonish one another, forgive one another, submit to one another. And when those kinds of things are happening in our church, and when those things characterize our relationships, when, when, when we've begun to experience New Testament community, when that is true of us, when we are loving, serving, accepting, admonishing, forgiving, submitting, all these one another's, that's New Testament community, and that is our end game. That's our definition of success. That's core value number five. Number six, small groups function as basic church. And number seven, life change happens best in small groups. Uh, again, I've just kind of put these two together because I'm not going to say a lot about this this morning because we're going to come back to this in a few weeks and talk specifically about the value of the small group environment, uh, spend a lot of time with that some, with some intentionality. But I just want you to know that we recognize that we haven't done small groups very well in the last probably three or four years, um, honestly. Some people got a little burned out. Some people got a little tired. It got a little familiar. Um, Part of the reason for that is because we didn't always do a good job of developing the next leaders for our small group environments. And so we are actively turning a corner on this. Uh, we're actively engaging in conversations with potential leaders and hosts. And we're going to relaunch small groups in a few weeks, hopefully shortly after Easter. That's our goal. In the meantime, <clears throat> we're going to continue to do small groups where we're doing them well. And that's in our kids' ministries. Every week, the preschoolers and jammers and the elementary kids in Surge gather at some point in their morning in small groups. And their leaders engage with them in discussion about the morning's lesson. And uh, I've encouraged you, anytime, any Sunday, to stroll through. You can get up and, 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 and leave the space to go check out what's happening uh, in, the, in the children's ministries. It's a big picture of what we're doing here. Every time our teens are together in the queue like they are on Sunday morning, there's a bunch of them in there today. They get together after some group teaching time, after they've had some time to work in their journals that we provide for them, uh, they gather in small groups. Sometimes by age, sometimes by boys are in a group, girls are in a group, depends on how the group is, how, it makes it, how it's made up on a Sunday. Um, men's frat, kindred spirits, every gathering includes time for discussion in small groups. So we're going to keep emphasizing small groups, the importance of that in those environments, and we're going to do some teaching here in a few weeks about the core value of the small group experience, and we're going to announce some uh, ways for you to get connected in the small group environments. Our goal is for everyone who attends on Sundays to be connected with other followers of Jesus in a small group somewhere. In fact, I think it would be awesome if we had more people in small groups through the week than we have here on Sunday morning. That would be amazing. Because when it comes down to interacting with Scripture... And staying on track as a disciple of Jesus and avoiding the drift and finding support and encouragement and biblical community that we were really created for, we, re- we believe that circles are better than rows for all of that. So we're going to come back and talk about that in a few weeks. Number eight, children and youth participate fully in church life. We've been given an incredible opportunity and responsibility to pass down to the next generation the truths and the foundations of our faith that have transformed and so radically changed and altered our lives. That's our responsibility. It's a responsibility and it's a stewardship for all of us. And you're like, well, I don't have kids here. This, we're in this thing together. We're, we're one family here. We have a responsibility to each other's children. So for those of us who have children, for those of us who don't, those of us who aren't married yet, those of us whose children have grown up and gone on, it's a responsibility that all of us need to think through from time to time, our responsibility to the children of this church. Because along with the responsibility comes a certain amount of joy. Because all those children have a lot to learn, they have a lot to teach as well. We'll humble ourselves and allow, just allow ourselves to hear what they have to teach us. 
In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, uh, we come to one of those passages in Scripture that is so, uh, it's so familiar that whether you're a church person or not, uh, if you've never opened a Bible or not, it doesn't matter. You've probably heard this story or some version of this story, at least parts of the story. It's one of those stories that are so familiar that oftentimes preachers don't want to preach on it because it's so familiar and you already know the end of the story. But this is a story that demonstrates and illustrates for us the importance and the significant role that children and youth have from God's perspective. So I absolutely love this story in Mark 10. I don't have time this morning to give you the backstory, so you should read this whole passage on your own to get the context and the circumstances leading up to this interaction. Mark chapter 10, verse 13 says, People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. And when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. Now, Jesus didn't get indignant very often. It's not a word that's normally ascribed to Jesus, but this really kind of really ticked him off. He was indignant. He said to them, to his disciples, he said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. Then he gives us the reason why. Because this is a good PR move for leaders to hold and touch babies. No, it's not what he said said, because people will think I'm insensitive if I'm not sensitive to children. No, that's not what he said. He had something more important to say. He said, because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. In other words, don't hinder these children because they are the most kingdom-like people I've been around in a long time. These are the kinds of people who inhabit the kingdom of God. It's as if he was saying, I am more at home with this group than I am with you guys. Because this group of kids is the most kingdom-like people you'll be around. And this is the only group of people that ever, Jesus ever ascribed that quality to. Never again did he say, well, these people are the, like those in the kingdom of God. This group of people is very much like the people in my kingdom. He said, these children are the most kingdom-like people that you can imagine. So don't keep them from coming to me. It's as if there was something refreshing to Jesus about this interaction with kids. And, as, and so they came, and they came, and they came. And as he reached out and he put his hands on these kids, and he embraced these kids, and he loved on these children, and he held those children, and he blessed those children... It seems as though, when you read the story, as though the adults in the crowd were kind of put off by the whole thing. The disciples were obviously embarrassed. They'd kind of been rebuked in front of everybody. And all the adults with all the adult issues and the sick and the lame and the people with questions and the Pharisees. I mean, we got some important stuff going on, Jesus. I mean, come on, we got some heavy, important things to do here. And as Jesus continued to bless and hold the children, apparently he could see in the faces, and in the faces of the disciples, and the faces of the crowd, what their attitude was. And he laid something on them that we read and go right by. But I guarantee it got their attention because in their thinking, this wasn't real ministry. This was sort of a parenthesis. This was was just a a pause in the action. And and as Jesus touched and held and, and kissed those kids and those babies, he looked up at the crowd and he said this in verse 15 of Mark 10. He said, I tell you the truth. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And then he went right back to being with the kids. And all these people all around just think this, this, is, this is all some, car, some sort of deviation from the program, from the real ministry. But Jesus looks up and makes it clear, and he's like, hey, hey, this, this is what it's all about. This is the real deal. This isn't a pause in the action. This is essential to why I'm here. And he just throws it out there without any explanation. It must have sent them into a tailspin, given their understanding of what they thought the kingdom of God was. You know, it's like, oh, by the way, all you adults, if you don't become like these little kids, you can't be in my kingdom. And all of a sudden, it's like, whoa, whoa, wait, what? He said something about the kingdom and kids. What's he talking about? And suddenly what seemed like kind of an intermission in the ministry became central to the teaching of Jesus. So what's he mean, like a little child? That if you don't become like a little child, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. 
See, children have a lot to learn, but children and youth have a lot to teach. In fact, if Jesus was correct, and I believe he was always correct, then what the children had to teach at this particular moment was the most important lesson for any of us to learn at that, in this scenario. How do we, how to know that we're part of the kingdom of God? So what's he mean, like a little child? Here's what I think he meant. You see, the difference between adults and kids in terms of how we learn is this, that with children, it's not what's being told them that matters so much as who's doing the telling. Children believe things based on who's doing the telling, not just what's being told. The testimony of the teller determines what's true, not their ability to figure it out. So when you take a little child and you tell them anything, I mean, you can tell them anything. (laughs) And it's kind of cool when you're that person that they trust and you can just tell them anything and you can really mess with them. But you can tell them anything. And if you are the person that represents authority to them in their lives, they just nod their head yes. They believe it. They don't question it. They don't wait until they can figure it out. They don't ask analytical questions. They don't try to sort through the details and compare it to other information. No, a child looks at you, and if you're the the authority in that child's life, if you're somebody who's presented yourself as trustworthy in the eyes of that child, they just go, "Uh uh-huh, and they believe you. A child will believe what you tell them, not because of the information, but because of the source of the information. Not because of what's being told, but because of who was doing the telling. And this was Jesus' big issue with the people of his day. He kept saying to them, my testimony is true. You can trust me. You don't think you can trust me? Okay, watch this. Rise and be healed. Hey, what about that? Look, you can trust me. He went around validating his ministry and his testimony. And and the the things he did validated the things he said. He says, look, I know I'm not answering the questions the way you'd like me to. I know I'm not all that you pictured in the promised Messiah. I'm not all that you'd hoped for. But look, I'm the Messiah. You've got to put your trust in me because you are not going to get all your questions answered to your satisfaction. Things aren't going to get all sorted out in just a certain way. It boils down to, do you trust the one who's doing the telling? Or are you going to continue to be hung up on what I'm telling you? And Jesus looks up at the crowd, and he's got the babies and the children, and he says... Uh, Hey, all you sophisticated adults, all you super religious people, you've got to become like these little kids to get in. And I don't care what you know, and I don't care what you've done, and I don't care what your pedigree is, and I don't care how you intend to change. It all boils down to do you trust me? Not can you explain it and sort it out. Do you trust me? And in this passage, Jesus kind of unloads on us a little bit of our responsibility as well. And he tells us that, yeah, children have a lot to teach, but children have a lot to learn too. And as adults, we have a responsibility to children. And it's it's in taking care of that responsibility that we learn so much from them. But the first question is, are we taking care of our responsibility? And in a very literal way, he gives us a principle that's kind of a broad stroke in terms of our responsibility to children. Not just parents' responsibility to kids, but corporately as a church, our responsibility to the children who are part of our church family. Look what he says in verse 14. He says, let the little children come to me, And do not hinder them. That was the disciples. That was the crowd's responsibility. Do not hinder them. And as a parent, for those of us who are parents and participants in this church, I believe that is Jesus' admonition to us as well. That our responsibility certainly is to teach and to model and to instruct and to to discipline and disciple. But overall, our responsibility is to remove every hindrance that would stand between a child and Jesus. So to remove all the hindrances, that there would be nothing in our lives, 
nothing in the way that we do church, nothing in our approach to ministry, nothing that would hinder a child from coming to Jesus. And although Jesus meant this in a very literal way, because these little children needed to not be hindered in order to get to where he was, there's a principle involved here. Our responsibility is to remove the hindrances. So you know what God's given us? He's given us the opportunity to take what's been entrusted to us to creatively deliver that to the next generation. It's not just something that maybe we'll try to do eventually. Maybe in the meantime, we'll play some games and have a fun time and babysit. No, it's something that God has given us as a stewardship here and now, and it's our responsibility. I believe it's the essence of Christianity that that somebody has delivered to me a message that changed my life, changed the nature of my relationship with my Creator. Now God's given me the opportunity to deliver that message to someone else. That's what Christianity is all about to go and make disciples and pass it on to someone else. And what an awesome responsibility, what an awesome opportunity that we've been given. As a church, we're responsible for removing every single hindrance from those children coming to and following Jesus Christ for the rest of their lives. It's a responsibility that all of us need to take seriously. For some of us who are parents, we need to do some house cleaning. We need to think about our character. We need to think about our consistency. We need to think about the things and the people and the entertainment and the addictive behaviors that we bring into our homes. We need to think about our schedules. We need to think about the way that we spend our money. We need to think about the things that we find our identity in. And we need to make sure that nothing is hindering our children from coming to Christ and following him and walking with him. For those of you who aren't parents, you don't have children in your home, uh, you, you need to think seriously about your responsibility, but your responsibility to pass this on to the next generation, to pass on what was passed on to you. So my challenge for you this morning is simply this. How can you be a part of that? How, what has God called you to do and to be? For some of you, it's not simply to sit in here on Sunday. It's to find your place in our children's ministries in Treasure Bay with the babies, and Jammers with the preschoolers, and Surge with the elementary kids, and the queue with FCF youth. And don't wait for us to ask for volunteers. We're going to keep asking for volunteers. We're going to do it every three months at least. But come speak to me about it. Take the initiative. By the way, semantics, perhaps, but we don't do child care at Faith Community. No one is babysitting your kids today. No way. Your kids are in Treasure Bay and Jammers and Surge in the queue, and they are being poured into and they are being led by passionate volunteers in an experience where they get to experience the love of God and the person of Jesus. That's what's happening today. Uh, I got to tell you this story. Uh, this is, I, I saw this on Facebook this week. It might have been, I don't know, middle of the week sometime. Guy that was um, in, in, our, in our church in Texas, I was a volunteer. Uh, leader of our bus ministry. If you remember those days back in the 80s, or ever part of, how many of you ever part of a church that had a bus ministry? Anybody? So I'll have to explain this a little bit. So we would go out, we owned buses, and we'd go out on Saturday mornings as a team, we'd visit all the kids who regularly attended our church and uh, rode our bus to church, and we'd, we'd just remind them, hey, don't forget, tomorrow's Sunday, we'll be by to pick you up in such and such a time. And, uh, and then Sunday morning, we'd go back, we'd enter the church early, fire up the buses, about 72% of the time they would actually start, and then off we'd go and pick up these kids and bring them into Sunday school, and after church, we'd take them home. And most of the time, the parents didn't even know they were gone. It's just the way it worked. So we did bus ministry. And uh, that, was the first, that was the first ministry in the church that I led. I was like 18. And I had a kid, I don't know how old he was at the time, I could figure it out. His name was Jimmy. Came with his little brothers. Jimmy was a kid who, um, I don't know if I ever met his parents, but he hardly missed a Sunday. 
so I, uh, anyway, I've been friends with him on Facebook for, for years now, and um, he's living, that was, this was in Texas, he's living in Indianapolis. He went to, went to finished high school, went to Bible college. He's been an associate pastor of a church in Indianapolis, and uh, four kids, you know, been married 20 years. He's, um, and so anyway, t- this week he just posted a video of him preaching at a Sunday evening service a couple weeks ago. The reason I tell the story is this, because I know you're busy, we're all busy. The challenge is, okay, Lord, I'd like to be able to look at somebody in three or four or 10 or 20 or 30 years' time and know that I was a part of what they are today. And yeah, Lord, I'm busy. And I got a lot of stuff on my plate. And I'm not the best option for you probably, but I'm available. So I want to be a part of this. Show me how. When you ask God, show me how, <laughs> he will show you how. He'll point you in a direction. Come talk with us. We'll we'll help you get plugged in, do the best to get you plugged in in the right environment and equipped to serve. Core value number nine is that faith community fellowship should be culturally relevant while remaining biblically based. Just repeat that one. We should be culturally relevant while remaining biblically based. It's important that we understand the demographics of the community that we live in. Things like age and marital status and income and education and occupations and those kinds of things. It's important that we understand uh, all these things about our culture as a whole, maybe on a nation, national scale, or even globally what's happening. Um, but it's even more important to understand the culture of our community. And by culture, I mean the lifestyle, the mindset, the paradigm of people who live in our community that we do life with. I'm talking about what do people value? What are their interests? What are their hurts? What are their fears? What, are their, uh, what do they do for entertainment? What kind of music do they like? The more we know about them, the, the easier it is and the more effective we can be in reaching them. There are three or four major areas right off the, the, right off the top that come to mind for me when I think about what cultural relevance looks like. Um, and I think they start with things like, in this setting, it starts with music, preaching, environments. Let me just talk about environment specifically the building that we gather in and the spaces inside this building. This is not, I don't know if you have what your other church experiences look like, but this is not your typical New England church building. Um, and some of you think that's funny because you know what I'm talking about, and others are like, I don't know what that means. It's, this is not because, we're not here because it's all we could afford or it's all we could find. We weren't out looking for a white-painted, steepled, stained-glass building with wooden pews this is exactly the kind of environment we wanted to create. And inside the building, we're very careful about things like religious symbolism. We have a cross at the front today. It's not always there. When it's there, it's there for a reason. We just don't think we should display anything that requires any kind of explanation for people who are coming to church for the first time. If there's something that everybody else seems to understand what it means, and then newbies are like, I don't know what that means, and I don't feel like I belong here because like, everybody else seems to know. I was in a church last summer. And they had a clock up on the side, near the front on the side wall. And I can't remember the time. It, was not, it wasn't working. And I just wondered if somebody forgot to change the batteries or to wind it or whatever. It was very distracting to me. <laughs> First of all, sitting in a church service is distracting for me because I'm just so not used to that. And I just analyzed everything. They had 432 ceiling tiles. They had 12 <laughs> light fixtures. Uh, no, I don't. Oh, now I got to go check. Um, 
They had this clock that didn't work. Bothered me. But what, here's what I found out later, that everybody in the church knew what that clock was for. It represented something, some event during World War II, and it was set at the time of that particular event in World War II because somebody from that church was serving in the European conflict at that time, and so their family donated this clock to set at that time to commemorate that event in World War II. That's nice for a museum. I don't know why it's doing in a church because I was a newbie there, and I'm a pretty religious person. I should have been able to figure out what these things mean. But I had no idea. Someone explained to me. I just asked the people I went with. I said, did that bother you? That clock didn't work. He says, oh, it's not supposed to work. I'm like, what? What? So anyway, what was I talking about? Yeah, we avoid symbolism that requires explanation. Um, Insider kind of stuff makes the outsider feel like they don't belong. And we want to eliminate as much of that as possible. Another cultural cultural factor is music, because music has a way of defining who we are, not only as a church, but even in our history as a nation. Think about it. It's incredibly influential. It can determine the kind of people we attract, the kind of people we keep, the kind of people we lose. I know it sounds a little overstated because it's only 22 minutes in our service, you know what I mean? But the music we play has a potential to position us as a place where unchurched people feel comfortable. It has that potential. I'm not saying we always nail that, but that's kind of what we're going for. And as much as we care about you church people, and we love you, you know we do. We do, really, we do. We really care about unchurched people. We care about your friends and family and coworkers who aren't here yet. And so when you ask why we don't do a certain 19th century song, let's just remember this experience isn't all about us. I think we understand here for the most part that no music in and of itself is sacred. For hundreds of thousands, for th- not hundreds of thousands, but hundreds and thousands of years, the Holy Spirit has used all different kinds of music to bring glory to God. It takes all kinds of churches using all kinds of music styles to reach all kinds of people, even in a small town like Ellsworth, Maine. So no one style of ministry is going to reach everybody. I get that. And we need to understand that and respect that. Admittedly, I get a kick out of church people. Church people just make me laugh. I've got to write some books about church people. Who yearn for the old hymns. Just think about this. Just think about this for a second. I had a conversation with somebody this week about music from the 80s. I was talking with Bill about it earlier. The reason that some of us like music from the 80s is because the 80s, is we were in that age where we were locking into our musical preferences. That's established. That's established by the time you're in your mid-20s, typically. 16 to 24, 25 is where you lock in on the style of music that you like. So for me, yeah, 1987 was it, man. Um, yeah, and... I'm not a big fan of really bad synthesizer, don't get me wrong, but like I said to Bill, Billie Jean comes on, I still think that's an amazing tune, and it holds up. So, um, so um, where was I going with this? Oh, yeah, so I get, I get it, I understand. If you, if you were around, you were 18 to 20, you're 16 to 24 years old, in 1845, I understand why you like that old hymn. I get it, because that's when you know, music was in your wheelhouse right then in the mid-19th century. Think about this. We invite 21st century Americans to come sit on 17th century wooden benches that we call pews to sing 18th century songs and listen to a medieval instrument that came out of like the 600s 
and we call it an organ, and we wonder why people think the church is irrelevant. Think about it. If you like hymns, listen to your hymns. I don't care if you listen. If you, I don't know if there's, there probably is a channel on Pandora or Spotify. So if you're listening to hymns, you don't even know what I'm talking about now, and I love that. Um, you can get your eight tracks out. That's cool with me. And listen to your hymns. That's great. And yeah, they're great, and they're theologically sound, and they're amazing and all that. For church people. The other area I want to talk about is preaching. You can't communicate with people until you find something in common with them. You can talk at them, but you're not communicating with them until you find something in common. So with the unchurched, we don't establish common ground by saying, let's open our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 14 as we continue our study of this wonderful prophecy. By the way, Isaiah 14 is weird, so just check it out. Because if you can explain Isaiah 14 to me with any kind of certainty, um, I will listen. Whew, sorry, some weird theology is coming out, of, coming out of Isaiah 14. Why I chose that chapter, I don't know. It just popped out at me. So um, that is not our common ground with unchurched people. The ground that we have in common with unchurched people is not the Bible. It's our common needs, our common hurts, our common interests as human beings. I honestly don't think God cares whether we teach the Bible verse by verse or topic by topic. If he cared, he would have told us that. I don't think he cares whether we start with the text and move to applying it to people's lives, or if we start with people's needs and move to the text. I don't think God cares. And I know preaching to felt needs is scorned and criticized in some circles and even in this community as a cheapening of the gospel and selling out to consumerism and attractional model and seeker sense. But listen, building a message around people's felt needs is not just a marketing tool. It's based on the fact that God has chosen to reveal himself to mankind according to our needs. Think about this. Even in the Old Testament, the names of God are revelations of how he meets our needs. Do a study on the names of God in the Old Testament and tell me if that's not God revealing himself about how he meets our needs. So if we're serious about doing ministry and reaching our community and seeing them come to Christ and follow him, we've got to remain faithful to the unchanging word of God. On the other hand, we have to minister in an ever-changing world. Is there a way to minister in our culture without compromising our convictions? I believe there is. The solution is to, po- is to follow Christ's example of me- ministering to people. He ministered to the world without being of the world. He made his dwelling among us, John said. He walked among people. He spoke their language. He observed their customs. He attended their parties. He used their current events. He never lowered his standards, but he always started where people were. He was contemporary without compromising the truth. So the Bible has to remain the foundation of everything that we teach, and our church should reflect certain cultural norms. It's a both and. We don't, we don't listen to, I don't listen to organ music on my streaming music service on my Bluetooth stereo. I don't. So why should I listen to it in church? If you do, then find a church that listens, if that's super important to you. And cultural relevance is, is, is determined both on a, it's on a global scale and it's on a very local scale. And uh, we don't ever want to do something here and adopt a style because some church somewhere that's really like a giga church is doing it because uh, it may not 
it's not going to translate to Downey's Main, and we know that. Core value number 10. Do I have time? I think I do. Number 10, excellence honors God and inspires people. Boy, some of you are tired of hearing me say this. First of all, I've got to define excellence. Excellence, of course, is perfection, so that's what we expect. Not, not true. No. Excellence is simply bringing the best that we have to offer. That's excellence. My best is going to be different from your best, but God hasn't called me to offer your best. This affects everything that we do. Cleaning the building, maintaining the building, our first impressions team, our quality of music, quality of programming, the content and the presentation of our teaching here in this room and with your kids and with your teenagers. I don't think anything's neutral in church. I think everything is either positive or negative. And every Sunday, you just never know who's going to walk through these doors. There are people here today that I haven't had a chance to meet yet. You just never know. You don't know what their story is. You don't know where they stand with God. You don't know what they think about the Bible. You don't, think what their, you don't know what their experience is with church. This is the first time ever, first time since childhood, or first time since two weeks ago when they had a bad experience in another church. You just never know. And every Sunday, people come into this church with brand new challenges, new questions, new doubts, new hurts, new uncertainty. And when we do things right and we pay attention to the details, from the cleanliness of the bathrooms to the attitude of the children's volunteers to the words we use in our teaching, we can remove some of the distractions and we can focus on ministering to people where they are. It's been commonly accepted that you have to choose between quality and quantity in church. I've heard lots of church leaders make excuses for this, the dwindling size of their congregation because they're just focusing on quality and, you know, whatever. I quality and quantity are not in opposition to each other. They aren't exclusive. You don't have to choose between the two. The church should want both. Every church should want both, quality and quantity. Let me ask this. How many of you are fishermen? You like to fish. You like to talk about, brag about fishing or whatever. Okay, you photoshopped some fish in your hand or something. Okay. I know some of you guys are fishermen. They like to fish. Some of you have been out recently. I don't fish, but, so I need to ask this question. When you go fishing, do you want quality or quantity? What do you want? You want both, right? Thank you. You're like, I think this is a trick question, but I don't know. I don't want to sound stupid. You want both. You want to catch the biggest fish you can and as many fish as you can, right? This church should want to reach as many people for Christ as possible, as well as desire to help those people become spiritually mature as possible. Both quality and quantity. And the fact that a lot of churches have chosen to ignore this is to ignore is this that quali- I, I have seen this that quality produces quantity. A church full of genuinely changed people attracts people. People are attracted to changing lives. They're attracted to quality music and quality preaching and teaching and quality ministry and quality fellowship and quality relationships. Quality attracts quantity. This is core value number 11. The band's going to come to the stage because I've prepared a really, really thought out segue. (laughs) The band's going to come to the stage. I've added one more. This This is core value number 11. Ready? Lost people matter to God. It sounds a little offensive to call them lost people. But we know we've been found. 
We didn't find something. We've been found. Lost people matter to God. This drives most of what we do on Sundays. If people are going to check out our church, they're going to do it on Sunday morning. It's just the reality of it. It's why we've decorated the way we have, not too churchy, not what an unchurched person might expect to find based on attending a couple funerals and some weddings. I love it, I love it, love it when we have groups come in here from the community. Back in November, we, had, we hosted a, an event here at the Chamber of Commerce, and I was helping one of the speakers get her wireless mic on, and she says to me, so, no, what kind of, what kind of building is this? I said, well, it's an it's a old roller skating rink, but now it's a church. She says, what kind of church? <laughs> I'm never quite sure how to answer that question. I love trying to answer it, but I'm never quite sure how. Um, but I love trying. You talk about an open door. It's the primary reason that we use the terminology that we do. It's why we don't do childcare. It's why we don't have Sunday school. It's why we put the scripture on the screen. It's why we play the style of music we do. It's why we handle corporate prayer with some sensitivity because small group is the optimal environment for that. Some churches have a specific target audience in mind for their Sunday morning services. I remember we started this church. People were like, well, who's your target? Who's your target? Well, um, we've made it fairly difficult on ourselves as far as a target audience because our target audience is everybody. And uh, from skeptic to saint, the whole spectrum, that's our target. And in fact, if, if we wanted to do church for church people, man, that would be so much easier, so much easier. We could just focus on ourselves and hold each other's hands and pat each other on the back and, you know, it would be great. Jesus' primary mission in his own words, Luke uh, chapter 19, was to seek and to save the lost. Every person you meet, every person you work with, every person you do business with, every person in your family, every person in your circle of friends matters to, they matter because they matter to God. And they matter to God because each one of them is someone that Jesus died for. That's why lost people matter to God, because Jesus died for them. And we don't ever as a church want to lose sight of that. I, I love the stories of the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost son in Luke chapter 10, or Luke chapter 15, where the shepherd uh, left the sheep in his fold to go look for the one that was lost. And the woman didn't give up searching until she found her lost coin. And the father watched every day for his lost son to return, and when he did, he threw a party. We must never lose sight of this truth that lost people matter to God. We ought to run everything that we do through that filter. You want to know the value of the people in your life, the people in our community, and the people who come through the doors of this building? Just look at the cross. Because lost people matter to God. Thanks for your attention this morning. Let's stand together and sing.